Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Hey there, everybody. Time for one of the most enjoyable programs of the month, every month, the Educators Panel, here on CPS at School, brought to you by Lives in the Balance. Welcome to today's program. We have one of our Educators Panel members who's been able to call in uh, so far. You know, it's an interesting time of day. Here on the East Coast, this is kind of when schools are getting out, so it's not always easy for our uh, and panel members to call in uh, right on time, but uh, we do have uh, Nina from South Berwick, Maine, who I'll be bringing on momentarily, um, and hopefully we'll have Tom from Freeport, and um, also uh, Carol from uh, Alberta. Um, how's things going in your building? People are often at this point in the year looking forward to February break if you have one. Spring break is still a little bit far off if that's not what you call your February break. Um, This is a time of year when things start to get a little intense. People uh, have been trying to help challenging, behaviorally challenging kids in the building. Now they're starting to wonder if what they're doing is working. It's not working. Often they're starting to wonder if now is the time to start lowering the boom since what they've been doing hadn't been working. Um, Well, lowering the boom doesn't work any better in February than it does in September. It doesn't work any better in September than it does in May. There's no replacement for figuring out what skills a student is lacking, figuring out these specific conditions that are called unsolved problems in which those lagging skills are making it difficult, and solving those problems so that they don't set in motion challenging behavior anymore and so that the skills the student is lacking get taught. No substitute for that. No replacement. Lowering the boom doesn't do any of that. Let's bring Nina on. How are you, Nina? Nina hasn't come back on yet because the thing's not working. Now Nina's on. How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? You have to repeat whatever your response was on the first time that I asked you how you were. That I am doing just fine. Everything's going well. How is CPS going in your building? It's going really. It's going really well. I think we're really trying to. You know, we're really at those stages trying to work all the kinks out, and um, have have we've made a big change to. Uh, have CPS time at their weekly team meetings, which seems so they because they all meet in grade levels, 
and we've spread out our core team to be at those team um, team meetings every week. So the last 15 minutes of those mi- meetings are devoted to CPS, and I think that's really going to change, you know, change things and have people have a deeper understanding as well as a time for everybody to process and to see where things are going well and where they're not going well. Uh, you know, it's definitely a, a hard, a harder thing than I think I thought of really trying to <laughs> implement uh, school-wide. And, uh, but it's been a huge learning curve, learning experience, and keep seeing what I'm doing that I need to change about how I'm doing things and keep on keeping lines of communication open. I think is so important. Um, what what things in up? Oh, I think we have uh, Carol with us now. Oh great! How are you? It's Tom. Oh, oh. Tom, sorry. <laughs> sorry okay. I'm calling you Carol. That's okay. <laughs> I hope that wasn't a Freudian slip. Uh, no, I mean I could use a higher pitched voice if that makes you feel more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're good. We're going to keep this program high level. All right. Of course, now that now that it's a completely New England telephone call, um, we can all, you know, we could talk Patriots for the next forty three minutes, but but one more, right? <laughs> we all went through the same thing last night, watching an agonizing loss, and um, as I told my son, dude, in three days. You're not even going to remember this game. Right. <laughs> As of last night, he wasn't so sure that my fatherly advice was accurate, but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll find out when I get home tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tom, I was asking Nina how things are going on her building, and her comment was um, things are going well, but this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um I just started working with a new school today that's part of the project that we have going on in Maine. And um, the, 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 those are always fun because, um, well, Nina, you said you don't, didn't realize how hard this was going to be. You're at the back end of your training in the project. Yep. And um, I was sitting there thinking that these people don't know what they have in store for themselves, but they will soon. I'm not, it's not yeah. like I'm – I can tell them it's going to be hard all I want, but it's kind of hard to know. It's like sort of getting to college and having people tell you it's going to be hard, but not really fully appreciating it until your fourth year, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. But I think that um, it goes back to training a, a training that core team strongly so that they're ready to support is really important. And I also think that it, it comes back to expectations of staff. I mean, if teachers have 15 minutes, two, three, or I'm sorry, three to five times a week, they're probably going to make a lot of headway with students. But I've directed some of my staff that have, quote, students who are struggling more or what we call, you know, heavy-hitting students. Uh, sometimes they need to have the guidance counselor do some CPS with the student in a more structured, you know, 30 to 40-minute or 45-minute session. And sometimes I'll actually try to find a way to relieve the teacher to meet with the guidance counselor and the student to do collaborative problem-solving together. I'm finding that a a lot of the, you know, the 15-minute conversations make a difference for day-to-day business and kids who just need to learn how to be um, in the school. But for a student who requires more, the school has to plan to to do more. Um, You know, we certainly 
children who are struggling didn't get that way in a week or two. So we have to remember that, that this process will take time to help them to learn the skills and, and that we have to be committed to the kids and therefore to the process and, and the philosophy that kids do well if they can. I mean, it's just, it, I think people want quick results and I keep telling them that you, you, there are no quick results that, are worth, that, that work. You don't lose weight quick. You lose weight by exercising and working out and taking care of yourself over time. You we don't, don't want to use that example, do we? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, you get the point, right? You know, it's going to take time to help a kid, and people need to be patient and expect, you know, if we want real results, we need to put in real work, pay the price. I think that that's spot on, spot yeah. on. And so we're in the point in the implementation where that's a bit of a struggle because people get excited about the philosophy and all of these very happening ideas which are real and, and, and very effective, but then they don't realize that there's still a lot of sweat that goes behind those ideas. No question. And so that's by, kind by of... By the way, we have we have Carol joining us now, Then, but finish your thought. Hi, Carol. Hi. How are that, you? Crazy. We're going to let Tom finish his thought. Sure. Uh, I'm, that was actually my thought, was just that it's it's... It's it's very exciting in the initial phases to learn about this model and how to do it, and it's important to just. I think it's also important for people with a, a really hard kid in their room to work with a student who is um, who has some needs a little support, but that is pretty you know solvable or has problems that are workable because it continues to build their confidence while they're working with a really difficult kid. I think they they get some basic skills with the model, and then they try to focus on a really tough kid. And then when it doesn't go the way they wanted it to, they feel a little bit bad about it. And I just keep saying, don't forget about, you know, Susie or Johnny, that you helped quite a bit by using this model. You had some breakthroughs that made a real difference for them. Yeah. So just be patient and remember that, you know, it's kind of like skiing. You know, you, you want to you do a green, a green trail every once in a while before you tackle a double black diamond again because you've got to remember where you came from. I mean, you started on the bunny slope, you know. Geez, you're using examples today that I'm having difficulty relating to. I've, <laughs> I've been snowboarding a lot, Ross. Weight. I've been having trouble losing weight for like the last 10 years, and I've given up skiing <laughs> just because... I just taught my son how to snowboard this last month, so it's been a blast. We've been living at the mountain. Um, well, my son is the is the boarder in the family, too, but what I learned is that if you are a lousy skier and your family skis better than you, then... Despite all this talk about family skiing, if you're on the bunny slope, they're going to do exactly one run with you, <laughs> and then, then they don't really care if they like you or if they want to be with you. The mountain beckons. Right. <laughs> I'll so, take you so skiing, much, Ross. So much for the family <laughs> ski. You know, who wants to do the bunny slope with me? So I finally decided that being alone and being cold um, wasn't worth it. So now I just write books in the lodge by the fire while they go out and you know avoid um, you know all the hazards that are out there. <laughs> Carol, how are you doing? Speaking of ski slopes. Um, Speaking of ski slopes, I was you're uh, one of I the few places in North America that actually has snow. Yeah, yeah. Well, up up on the mountains, not so much right. down here, actually. Um, but definitely, I, I apologize for being late. I was uh, doing some CPS with some students, and uh, it, uh, it, just as Tom was saying, it was taking me a little bit more than the quick fifteen-minute conversation. So uh, I was definitely trying to dig into it a little bit with the kindergartner. Mm. That can be fun. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was it was in between bites of bologna sandwich and uh, comments on every every little thing in my office. She got a little distracted, but uh, 
definitely didn't get to uh to the the uh uh the ideas stage yet, but we definitely dug a little bit into some of the uh concerns that she's having and um they are numerous and as Tom was also saying they didn't they didn't pop up overnight so they're definitely not going to go away overnight but uh definitely gave me some points at which to start being more curious about what's going on for this little one. Excellent. You know, that's people you know, I was I don't remember where I was uh speaking. Uh, I don't remember where it was. It was at a um school last Thursday and the biggest complaint of the people who had brought me in to speak that the biggest mentality that they said they had to struggle with was their teachers just wanted the problem gone now. Yep. 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 And what's what's so clear is that the faster we want the problem gone now, the less informed we are, the less well we know our students, the less well we know what's getting in their way. So, you know, I'm sitting here, many people, I guess, could be sitting there listening to your story and saying, so what was the solution to the problem? Did you get the problem solved? <laughs> and, it done? Mm-hmm. and I'm sitting here going, wow. You, you know, you you know a lot more about that kid than you did. You know that there's uh, even more to know based on the time that you spent with the kid. You'll get the problem solved, but you're not going to get anything solved if you don't understand what's really getting in a kid's way. Yeah. The what I'm finding interesting lately is, especially working with um with kindergarten, is that um, a lot of the time I'll have parents coming to me that you know their child isn't the one causing the problem, but their child is maybe on the receiving end of some challenging behavior, mm. whether it's a student that's being aggressive or name-calling or, you know, pushing or whatever. And um, it's it's sometimes hard to to talk with the other parent about, you know, how we're working on this because they, you know, their child comes home and says, you know, Bobby kicked me today. And that parent's like, well, that school has to do something about Bobby. I want Bobby to stop kicking right now. And so there's another kind of element in there where sometimes you have to, to, you know, be working on both ends at once. Of course, we don't want Bobby kicking, but we know that just giving Bobby a detention isn't going to stop Bobby from kicking. So, um, it's the more I work with CPS, the more I realize how how multifaceted it is. You've got to balance a lot of um, a lot of needs and interests and and concerns. So, yeah, it doesn't. Do. I, I, I've it doesn't get a lot easier as you get better at it. It just becomes maybe richer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Put it well, that you, way. You know, you get the better you get at it, the more multifaceted you realize the problems are. Yeah. But mm-hmm. also, once you become, I mean, the challenging part is becoming empathic toward the challenging kid. What I'm saying in my talks these days is, what does it feel like to be this kid? But the minute you start saying, what does it feel like to be this kid? You also then open yourself up to, okay, but we're not limiting our empathy to the kid. What does it feel like to be this kid's classmates? Mm-hmm. And what does it feel like to be this kid's teacher? And what does it feel like to be this kid's parent? Um, plenty of empathy to go around, but you start recognizing that problems are difficult because the concerns are multifaceted. Well, exactly. I mean, it's it's not just, you know, the in, in the model, it's the child's concern and then our concern, but there's also the child's concern, our concern, their their target's concern, their teacher's concern, their yep. parent's concern. Like yep. you said, there's a lot of concerns in there. Sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're not the same. Um, but I think, especially when you're working with really young children, you have to try and be as 
I don't want to say simplistic, but you know, bringing in too many concerns can can be distracting for them, be difficult for them to understand. It can. Yeah. So I, I, I noticed that with the student I was working with today, was she kind of at one point? I think I, I realized that I was um, maybe not listening enough and maybe talking too much when the bologna sandwich became much more interesting than I was. <laughs> well, that's, so I took my cue. I said, you know, I think maybe. We, think maybe we've had enough of this for today. I know it's kind of hard to talk about this yeah. for this long. So that's why we didn't even get close to the, the, the invitation step because, you know, we weren't ready to get there, but she'd reached her limit for that day. Um, speaking of concerns, uh, Lives in the Balance has a new uh, page on its website called Good and Bad News huh. in which we... Um, are keeping people appraised of what's going on out there, especially in schools, but also in restrictive therapeutic facilities, inpatient units, residential facilities, prisons, although most of them are school-related. And among the headlines that are most current, uh, one from Massachusetts, schools suspending thousands of states' youngest uh, another one, zero-tolerance policies toss thousands from Massachusetts schools. And then one that was hot about a week ago, but that, of course, like these things do, died down. Connecticut Education Department shows 18,000 instances of restraint or seclusion of school children in 2009-2010. Uh, and just below that, experts call scream rooms untherapeutic, harmful to children and others at school. That's one I was actually quoted in in the Hartford Current. Uh, and then there's this one from, I believe, Arizona. Proposed law would allow teachers to suspend students. Mm. In other words, you don't need a principal or assistant principal to do it anymore. But wow. A teacher can do it. When I was in um, California, that was the regulation that teachers could suspend for up to one full day, and then longer than that, a principal needed to be involved. Yep. Well, that's what um, happens when the organization's so huge that the principal can't do it all. Stay on right. top of it because the right. the the you know the the number of single day expulsions at, at a at a you know ten thousand student high school, you know multi camp a huge campus. It's I can understand that, but it would be very. How do I say it? Well, I'm awfully thankful I don't have to work that way. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and and that's you know, it's so underreported too because I can imagine at elementary schools that kids are often asked not to come back and I don't even you know I wouldn't think that might not even be reported anywhere yeah, I not agree. come back in for a few days until they can you know settle down or whatever the language is so yeah but I'm not sure we I know that's happened in the past year and I don't think that would have, is it even reported anywhere hmm. Hmm. um but I was wondering about you all and Scream rooms in particular. Scream rooms is the term that was being used in some of these school systems in Connecticut for what uh, other people would call a timeout room. Right. Um, and, of course, the debate is, um, do you even need them in a building? And, um, Nina, I know firsthand in your building that there are kids who you've been able to keep in the building mm-hmm. who, who might have been scream room kids in prior years. Yes. And um, might have actually been placed out of your building in other years. Yep. And 
who are the kids who are sort of at risk for being placed in the proverbial padded room. Yep. How have those kids in particular, I mean, a lot of people will say, um, all right, I can see this for a sort of challenging kid. Um, how have the ones who are sort of scream room prone, and I don't think you have a scream room in your building, I certainly no. don't think you call it that, but nope. um, can you get by in a building without a padded room? Yeah, I would I mean I think for us that this, you know once you, when you don't have it my goal is if I have a child that's really really um agitated or really upset uh I my goal is to just to help them using emergency plan B to de-escalate whatever I can and I I would think that if I if we had a a scream room my goal would be to just let them be in there until they work it out themselves. So I think that it just changes your mindset of my goal is to help them whatever I can and then revisit and do do problem solving so that this we can figure out what's going on. Uh, I think that would be, you know, it might be easier just to have a room that a couple people bring somebody and put them in, but it wouldn't solve anything and it would keep on happening. So I don't, I don't get it. How does your building... You've got challenging students in your building, many of whom would end up in screen rooms in another building. How do you do this? Well, I, you know, number one, having the empathy is the most important part for me. Is having empathy for the for the children and just really trying to trying to be curious and figure out what is going on and what can we do. You have to be really flexible, and we work with an amazingly flexible team that. You know, I was just we at our last CPS meeting. I, we brought up a student who's having a really difficult time, and he's one of those students that's pretty visible because his difficult time is kind of in you know in the hallways and other places. So, I was just so amazed by how many people jumped in, offering their help, offering to cover classes, offering to bring in supplies and art and things that maybe he would be interested in. So, I think it's flexibility, teamwork, and all being empathetic towards towards what's going on instead of that quick mindset you can have of get them get them away or get them out of here you just what can we do so you're managing without a scream room i mean one of the things tom said struck me when you're working in a when you're when you're not doing what carol was doing figuring out what a kid's concerns are taking the time to listen as a prelude to solving the problem then what you might be doing instead is applying a very, some people would call it a rubric, a rather rote system of discipline that is being applied, a template that is being laid over all students. Um, And those are the types of things that are easy to write and makes it very straightforward what people should do when a problem pops up. It's an algorithm. Um, Getting away from algorithms in very big systems is not easily done, and yet you all are doing it. I'm just sort of curious how how are you doing it? Well, I think the other thing is that we have had you know, which is another part of just implementation, um, people that have really wanted things written down, and that was really a, an interesting discussion too because I realized like we did, we tried to write sort of the plan, the CPS plan, and a lot of our teachers started to feel much more comfortable knowing that there is there is something written down and it's it just shows the steps of what we would do, but it's not a rigid, 
you know, if this, then that is more of how you would access CPS and how you would have time. And and if it rose to the level of real aggression, who would be involved? And it doesn't mean that, you know, I think there was some confusion about if there was some an aggressive act that we wouldn't want to involve you know, myself or the principal. And we really had to clear up that, no, of course we still want to know about it. You know, our principal is the first one that gets the phone call. Uh, so we want to know about it and be involved and be involved in the problem-solving steps. So, that I think that was helpful for us to figure out this week. It's a tough, tough question. I mean, I, I think that it depends. It's kind of like, a, well, collaborative problem solving is a responsive model to behavioral concerns. The same way the teachers' college reading and writing process is a, a responsive model for reading instruction, and and I think that um, you really do have to assess the needs of the building, and then figure out a structure that allows people to work with children based on the building's specific needs. And I think that the key to the success of, of not needing a, a, a you know a scream room comes from, A, being aware of the kids that are in the building, B, being aware of the staff and their skill set, C, providing professional development that gives the staff the skills to deal with kids who are struggling, and then D, providing the time for them to do it. And and really com- making a commitment to that as a school community is really central to um, the collaborative problem-solving model and also just doing what's right for human beings. Um, I think that, that you know, it, it it's a struggle sometimes because um, students can escalate to the level where they just need to express their frustration and but it's one thing to talk about expressing frustration and it's another thing to just put a kid in a room and let them flip out until they until they calm down and then just say okay you're done go back to class you know i mean there's there's a certainly a, 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 a you know a clear delineation philosophically between those two ideas which are certainly extremes most places fall more in a, on a, in the middle in a gray area on the continuum but i think it really does come down to literally developing the skills of the professionals in the building. It comes down to professional development. If you don't have the professional development and people don't understand that there are other ways to deal with kids, then they're just going to do what they know because it's all they have. It's just like parenting. Can't yeah. We can't help parents if we don't teach them new skills. Same thing for staff. There are, you know, I have 35 for, during the day, essentially, they're, they're the parents of these children because they're responsible for them. And so we have to teach them skills and the hardest part for me is is just uh, finding the time to get it to happen for them. Right. It, it's really challenging. I mean, professional development budgets are getting slashed up, down, and sideways. So I think that goes again. I'll say it again. Getting that core team that can really help people seems to be the most important part of effectively implementing any change model in a school, but particularly one that is as skill-sensitive as, as collaborative problem-solving because if you don't have the skills with this model – you can't do it well, and you only get them by practicing it over and over again. You don't get them by understanding it. You have to be able to actually do it. I'm with you. And that's why in our project we start with the core group and get them good at it. Um, But this is an intense thing because it is skill sensitive. Plan B done poorly, I'll take plan B done poorly over plan A done poorly. 
<laughs> but on not, in neither condition is the problem getting solved, and so people are still frustrated. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, too, with the scream rooms, um, you know, I had a suggestion for one of our students who who also was, you know, have some have some pretty heavy needs, and the suggestion was to have clear out a room and put him in there, and if um, you know, if needed during the day. And I, it was interesting to have a conversation. And I guess my my um, suggestion was, I said, well, if you know, if he's de- if he's depressed or anxious, how is that going to cure? How's that going to solve the problem of being sad? You know, it's not it's not going to solve anything. Um, it might control him for a little bit, but it's definitely not going to get down down to the what's really going on, what really is the unsolved problem. And just going back to what you always say, Ross, about how would you put somebody who couldn't read into a screen room until they could read? I mean, it just it really doesn't make any sense if you think about it though, through your model. Well, I've spoken to people who still defend scream rooms, saying that there are certain conditions under which there is no option um, but to have a safe place where an out-of-control kid can go. But as I said in the Hartford Current article, under that condition, something's the matter. Mm -hmm. Um, Either we have, as Tom was saying, adults who don't yet understand what challenging behavior is and or haven't been given the tools to deal with it well and proactively. Or we have a kid who's completely out of control um, because of too much plan A. Mm. Or we have a kid who is in need of medication that isn't being given. Mm -hmm. Or we have a staff who still has the wrong mentality about what these kids need and what's going to work. But the person who pays the price for that is the kid who's being thrown in the room. And it does require us taking a step back and saying, is the reason he's spending so much time in there, could that have something to do with us? Right. And I think when we find that if we have a child that seems to be have melting down much more, I, it's definitely, for me, for me at least, always equated to not doing enough um, proactive Plan B conversations. I would agree. You know I, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, in our school, we've been doing a lot of work um, on attachment theory and um, kids that uh, are, are stuck in, in patterns of futile behavior because they simply can't um, get to a point where they can understand the futility of their behavior and then move on. And so part of what we need to do is help guide them to, to understanding that, you know, this behavior isn't getting their need met, um, which and I find that it dovetails really well with collaborative problem-solving. Um, but in my opinion, putting a child in a scream room is, is actually a form of rejection. We're pushing them away mm-hmm. and saying, you know, I can't be around you in this situation and I'm going to just push you away until you can be more adaptive maybe. And um, as Nina was saying, you know, if they don't have the skills to be adaptive, then we're just perpetuating that cycle of futility. So um, I think Nina's right on where if a child is losing control, being there with them and just being compassionate and empathetic and saying, I know it's really hard right now. I, I, I can see just you're so upset. I know it's really, really hard. Yeah. But not rejecting them or, or isolating them because they need that adult presence to help calm them. Definitely. And the second you, know, if you, if you second you try plan A in that frustration, anything, you can just 
with any child in that state, you can see the escalation just rise right away. It's such a test. Mm-hmm. And the biggest challenge, and this is also a time issue, is that a timeout room or a scream room or a padded room, whatever you want to call it, is a is something that occurs after the fact, in the heat of the moment, often as an act of desperation. The, the, as it is with any challenging behavior, whether people are tempted to throw the kid in the stream or not, the, the, the whole key is to do a lot, of, do the vast majority of intervention proactively, and that is such a departure from the way things are done in a lot of places that hard as it is to do Plan B and get good at it, and that's the skill-sensitive part that Tom was talking about. There's a huge logistical communication piece here related to communicating so as to make the whole process as proactive as possible. If you're being proactive and you're doing Plan B proactively and you're identifying your challenging kids proactively and figuring out what their lagging skills and unsolved problems are and starting to solve those problems proactively, um, whether you have a screen room or not, you've now dramatically reduced its use because you're doing all of this proactively instead of um, doing things predominantly in the heat of the moment. But I find that shifting from emergent to proactive is a massive challenge in buildings. Yeah, yeah but I think that, the, okay, I'm watching the clock so I don't go too long, but i got to say one thing about that that I think is important, <laughs> which is that the essence of human development the reason why we are not animals is because we have the ability to choose our response to stimulus. And so you could take that and take the leap philosophically that putting someone in a scream room is a reversion to a reactive state, whereas collaborative problem solving is exploding the idea of being proactive. So it's, it's an evolutionary concept not revolutionary, evolutionary, mm-hmm. that that we can actually evolve to the point where we can not only choose our response to circumstances and situations, but we can also choose our response to circumstances and situations and do it with a, such a high level of consciousness and skill that we can actually help each other to heal. And so the es- essence of empathy is to heal each other. And, and that's the essence of, honestly, of... Of, of all counseling or therapy that, that people people don't realize the general public probably doesn't realize that people actually get way better as the result of really good counseling or really good human interactions mm-hmm. that the way that we treat each other actually affects our energy our creativity our mental health our ability to 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 access our creativity and forward thinking and and that the you know that theoretically the, the the animal instinct of our brain should continue to devolve over time. So I think that it really does require that people have a, 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 a an awareness that that working on things like collaborative problem solving and social interaction are actually evolutionary in nature, and that we'll get better at them over time by continually doing them, and by doing them we'll let go of things that used to serve us when we were when we were reactive animals. The interesting piece of that is a lot of people just, I love all of that. What a lot of people will tell me to justify their maltreatment of a behaviorally challenging student is that they're doing it for the sake of the other students, and they view that 
as an evolved, humane stance to be taking. And that's them, in the parlance of what I said earlier, that's them wanting to be empathic toward the challenging kid. But number one, he's outnumbered, and number two, he's the one who's being unsafe. And it's it's leaning, it's it's favoring the empathy toward the rest of the kids, even though you'd like to be empathic toward the challenging kid. And I find that that's a really big challenge for people, is that they are actually, they want to be, uh, responding to the challenging kid in as in as humane a way as possible, but they are um, also needing to be empathic toward the rest of the class. And when you frame it that way, the behaviorally challenging kid often loses out because people are, as, as Carol was saying earlier, you know the, the the concerns become multifaceted and complex. And at some point, I find that people say, you know what. This, it may be complex. I feel bad for the kid, but now I'm going to go simple. I really got to protect the rest of my class. Well, that's exactly what an animal does. It protects. It protects, and and that's not. And I'm not saying that in a critical way. That's totally natural and human. And there is a point. I actually had an incident today where I said to the student, "You're staying in for recess with me tomorrow." Because I need to talk to him, and I need him to understand that 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 we're serious, that what he's doing is unacceptable. But the difference is, is that he'll come in for recess, and we'll have a wonderful conversation using these skills. Whereas prior to meeting you and learning these things, I would have just kept him in for recess, and he would have just sat there. Yeah, I'm thinking about what he did. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to use what I can. But I did have to actually do that myself today, Ross. So when I said that comment, I certainly wasn't being critical in any way. No, no, no. no. Which comment? Right, there are. Uh, about being an animal, you know, that's what animals do. They protect. That's normal. That's okay. And I guess I see, yeah, it's okay to protect. I guess I see it as difficulty maintaining the balance of empathy toward the behaviorally challenging and toward the rest of the class. Yep. Very hard to do. I guess, you know, my simple answer to that is. Get the problem solved, uh, not by tossing the kid, but get the problem solved, and you've been empathic in both directions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's that's my answer. But I'm acknowledging that that's a pattern that we sometimes instinctively engage in. You know, if if one of our children uh, was on the you know the the wrong side of how we expected them to be treated instinctively we would try to protect them and lash out against the person who we thought was treating them badly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had that. Uh, I, I sometimes tell the story of when my daughter was in preschool. She got into the car and very matter-of-factly, I, I used to have time to pick her up at school. Uh, that mm-hmm. was that was that's like a pipe dream now. But um, back in the day when I actually had time to pick my daughter up at school, one day she got in the back of the car and told me that one of her preschool classmates had sat on her head <laughs> during school that day. And, of course, uh, not being keen on the imagery, but all, and also in, instinctively the father as protector kicked in. I had steam coming out of my ears by the time I got home, called the school, and the teacher told me that she's an excellent preschool teacher, 
told me that she had been aware that that had happened and that this was a boy who was having trouble making friends. And then came the key line. She said, and your daughter is really being very kind to him and helping him learn how to make friends. And, okay, now the steam is, you know, now I don't have so much steam coming out of my ears. Um, Not because, you know, I was thinking, oh, okay, my daughter is doing something great. Just that I was reassured that the teacher knew that it had gone on, was on top of it, was deeply devoted to having my daughter not get her head sat on the next day. Um, but I know the instinct. Um, I've experienced it firsthand. Yeah. Very hard to maintain the empathy balance mm. between the rest of the class and the behaviorally challenging kid. Because your Especially human instinct is to protect your, your child, right? You know, Absolutely. And that the wrongdoer and the wrongdoer should be controlled in some way. Uh huh. Yeah. Yep. Mm. And the thing is, what we're trying to teach is that the wrongdoer can can control themselves, which is what we're really our goal Mm. is for them Mm -hmm. to acquire the skills to be able to handle whatever situation was causing him to need to sit on her head. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it's an interesting pattern because the more punitive we are in our efforts to protect the rest of the kids in the class, the more punitive we are toward the kid who we who we are have framed as the challenging one, right. mm-hmm. the, the less likely we are to actually fix the problem. Yeah. I had a little girl this week that um, is having a really hard time, and when she was just, you know, on the back table just drawing, drawing a little bit, she drew a picture of herself crying, and under it, it she wrote, if I could, I would. I oh wow! I was uh, yes. I'll make you a copy because it was so profound and just again brought us all back to realize what we were doing and that we're doing the right thing. That's so true. We'll have to yeah. get her permission to use it as the next cartoon in the comic relief section of the Lives in the yeah. Balance website. They're they're never. I mean, they're they're sometimes funny, but that would actually be a rather um, that would be a poignant one. It was. Oh, it brought tears to all of our eyes and just yeah, just. It's, she, those are her exact words, and it shows us that we are doing the right thing. If you get permission, could I have a copy of that? Yeah, definitely. Now everybody wants a piece of that. That's the thing that happens. Everything good happens. Everybody wants a piece of the action. And well, I was good. thinking that, that more. It, 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 yeah, that too. But <laughs> I was thinking more that that it's just cool that that you know I've been talking with people about multimodal ways for kids to express themselves in the empathy step. So for kindergarten students, drawing. For, for We had a student who had a lot of success with a word sort about his day. Oh, and neat. and so I just, I think it, I, I was at the three-day training last summer. I only went for a day, but I was happened to be there when they were talking about um, some student that you had, Ross, doing research about autism and using pictures. Mm-hmm. And, and I just realized that with really young kids, some of my kindergarten kids have the skills of a three-year-old. So why wouldn't I use some pictures and have them tell me how they feel through pictures? Absolutely. And that that was just a great example of a kid drawing a picture and putting it right out there for you. Yep. It's nice. Well, I think that one of the most powerful things about CPS is it get it allows whoever is working with the child to to really get to know them and and see past whatever challenges they're having and actually see them as a human being because so often, and what you just said, Ross, you just said something about you know the child whose behavior has been labeled as challenging. Um, where you know we have instances, we've got students who 
are um, are very reactive, and sometimes other children in the class can manipulate that and and get them push their buttons so that they can be a scapegoat. And um, sometimes just by spending time, whether it's the the administrator or a counselor or a teacher or whoever is getting the chance to actually listen to that child, they become so much more human, and it becomes a lot easier to have the empathy for them. Human's the key word, and I think, unfortunately, it's the one we're going to have to end on today. I love these conversations. I'm tempted to do this more often than once a month, but for now it is what it is. I want to thank all of you for doing this again today. I look forward to doing it again next month, and um, we'll get back together again then. Thank you. Thank you.